0: I walk a straight line, shackle and chain. Old oh, and Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hillstring Gang around. back to bloody angola podcast 142 years in the making the complete story of america's bloodiest prison and i'm jim chapman uh what not with us today but we're going to keep on rolling rolling on the river as tina turner would say i'm going to tell you a little bit about my weekend and what got me into the frame of mind to talk about today's episode so I went to, of course, I produce Unspeakable, a true crime podcast by Kelly Jennings, and she did a live event this weekend. It was local here in uh, Livingston Parish, Louisiana, at Southeastern Louisiana University's Southeastern Livingston Center, which is a si- kind of like a satellite campus. So Kelly's live went really well, and it was on Derek Todd Lee, and Derek Todd Lee was a a very notorious serial killer here in the Baton Rouge area of Louisiana. Uh, And Derek Todd Lee was a brutal, brutal version. You know, all serial killers are brutal, but just the way in which he targeted and stalked these women uh, that he killed made him unique in a lot of ways. And it got me thinking about because a a big part of that story is the FBI profile of Derek Todd Lee. And it was actually incorrect uh, when it was first released. And there was a lot of issues with that that would come up, you know, for the police as they're trying to catch this guy. And this was back in the early 2000s. So it got me thinking about the amount of serial killers, not only in, Louisiana state penitentiary in Angola but really all over the country and how they get caught and the the profiling that takes place and the detective work that takes place and really the uniqueness of serial killers to kind of stay in a certain uh in a certain you know type of female uh, even down to the race and the hair color and things like that. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. And I, I want to use Derek Todd Lee as an example because uh, well, I know a lot about the case Uh, and I'm also, and he was incarcerated inside of Angola. And I'm also going to touch on some other serial killers that are and were incarcerated at Angola as well. So, let me give you the scenario with Derek Todd Lee, as I know it, uh, of his FBI profile. And it's, I'm going to take you back to the early, uh, the early 2000s and the late 1990s, which is when his killing spree was taking place. So during that time, uh, Louisiana actually had three serial killers. It wasn't just Derek Todd Lee. There were two more running around. We've done a podcast. Uh, I believe it was in our second season on one of those two. And that was Sean Vincent Gillis. So go back and listen to that if you hadn't had a chance to do so. But I want to I tell you, you know, there was three. There was actually three running around at this time. And when Derek Todd Lee actually uh, was killing women, it is a point of fact that Sean Vincent Gillis was, he knew this, and he knew he was killing women, but he, he, he knew that it wasn't the ones Derek Todd Lee was killing, obviously. But Derek Todd Lee had dumped some bodies in the Atchafalaya Spillway, off the Atchafalaya Spillway Bridge. And Sean Vincent Gillis took note of this, and he started kind of dumping bodies in the same area. And a lot of the reason he was doing this was because he, you know, he's a serial killer and he, he wants the police to think there's only one. Right. Uh, but when the police arrested Sean Vincent Gillis in his house, he actually had clippings of Derek Todd Lee uh, in his house. So he was following uh, a guy that was doing the same things that he was doing. As it turned out now, the FBI was, was uh, privy to, Derek Todd Lee early on in the fact that they had a serial killer. They didn't know it was him, obviously, but they knew there was a serial killer in Baton Rouge. And this is back, y'all, in a time when DNA was not what it is now. Now they have rapid DNA, which really speeds things up. Back in those days, you know, you could submit a DNA sample and it would take months to get that back in some cases. You could possibly speed it up a little bit, and that is what they did in the Sean Vincent Gillis case when they knew they had the right guy, as they sped up the DNA when they got it from him. But it was it was very hard to get that accomplished, and it wasn't common. I mean, it would take months. Um, so they relied heavily on FBI profiling back in those times, just like they did before DNA. Before DNA, the FBI would come out, and they would form this profile, okay, this guy is probably white. He's six foot two. He's skinny. You know, he typically preys on, uh, you know, females with blonde hair. That kind of thing. It, they would get it down to the brass tacks, man. When they're, uh, when they're profiling these folks, and that's what they did in this case. And when it originally came out, uh, they profiled him, Derek, meaning Derek Toddley, as a white guy. Hmm. You know, looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. We know Derek Todd Lee was not a white guy, uh, but at that time, a lot of stock was put, and it's still put in those FBI profiles. Uh, unfortunately, there's no such thing as perfect perfection, and in that case, obviously, they got it wrong. There was also a scenario that point made them point kind of to a white guy because of the fact that a man was on the interstate. He claimed he had seen a white guy in a white truck with one of the victims known as Pam Kinnamore. Uh, Her name was Pam Kinnamore, and he claimed that she looked like she was slumped over in the seat as if she were dead, Um, and that's what he called in. And so the police actually hypnotized it this guy. And under hypnosis, he described uh, a white guy in a white truck. And um, they relied on that as well. Because there have been cases in the past where people have been hypnotized and have been able to give unique features that a person would have. And they also have been able to describe like vehicles and things like that. And it turned out to be accurate. So the police Essentially, release an APB, you know, for all police in the entire state of Louisiana be on the lookout. A BOLO went out for a white guy in a white truck, and they started the DNA swab process. So, what took place then was everybody kind of uh, teamed up in these departments, and they would go out and they would ask for the to swab. They would ask for a DNA saliva swab from every white person they saw driving a white truck. Now, did they have to turn it over? No. Technically, you could say, you're not getting my DNA without a court order. And they wouldn't have had to do that. But most people are just normal people. And they wanted uh, Derek Todd Lee, who turned out to be Derek Todd Lee, caught this serial killer as much as anybody else. So they were more than willing to to supply their DNA if it would help catch the perpetrator. So this process uh, took a little while, and they swabbed, I don't know how many y'all, it was tens of thousands of people. I mean, think how many white trucks exist in whatever state you're listening to this in, or whatever country you're listening to this in. Uh, Think about how many white trucks are around you. And, uh, and they were stopping everybody. If you were white and you were driving a white truck, they stop you and they swab your DNA did this for a while. And while this was going on, there were police officers, uh, for another department and they had who they suspected, uh, you know, of doing these killings. And it was a black guy, which was totally opposite of the profile. So, there's an interesting story to that, too, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but I will, but that's an important, you know, DNA is an, an important tool in the capture of many types of criminals, but an extremely important tool in the capturing of uh, serial killers. And if you look back over the last 15 years, Almost every serial killer that was caught was caught by DNA. Um, Koberger is a good example. Brian Koberger, uh, who is now, you know, his trial, I think they're saying is going to start in 2025. But he was caught by what's known as Familia DNA, which is a process where, you know, supposedly in the court records, he left a sheath behind at those murders, his knife sheath. And when they ran the DNA on the knife sheath, his DNA was not on it. However, his dad's DNA was on it. And they, his dad has an alibi, right? They knew where he was. So they knew it had to be someone close to Brian Koberger. And actually, interestingly enough, the way that they were able to tie it, because they didn't have his dad's DNA. That's something I need to bring up. Just because you have a DNA sample, not everybody in the world is their DNA in what's known as CODIS, which is the system that that DNA is ran through. Uh, For example, my DNA, uh, to my knowledge, is not – I ain't even done the one, two, three, and me, y'all. Like I'm – I don't want nobody having my DNA. (laughs) That's my individual profile stuff. It it seems – you know, I don't – I don't commit crimes and I don't want no one to have my DNA. But uh, if I committed a crime and if I left DNA on the scene, unless they suspected Jim Chapman of doing it, that DNA is really going to do them no good until they get mine to form a match. Just because they have DNA does not mean they know who did it. They still have to get the DNA of the perpetrator and match it to the DNA that was found on the scene. In the Koberger case, the way they did that was they actually went to Koberger's house and they pulled, they well, they took his garbage and they went through his garbage at his father's house, which is where Brian Koberger fled to after all this went down. They go to his house, they go uh, his parents' house, they go through the garbage, and they actually find a match of DNA and it was a match to his, it was actually a match to his dad. Uh, So they knew that that sheath came from where Brian Koberger lived when he was not on campus. And that's kind of how they tied him to it. Um, And that's known as familiar DNA. They, they weren't able to match it straight to Brian Koberger, but they were able to match it to his dad. Um, Familiar DNA also comes into play because it'll say, You know, they'll get a a swab of DNA or a piece of DNA or they'll find DNA on a scene, maybe a hair strand or something like that. And then they can get a DNA from they can get DNA from an uncle, let's say. So let's say I committed a crime and the police came and they wanted my DNA sample and I told them no. And they didn't have enough evidence for a court order to actually force me to give my DNA They could go to my uncle and they could say, hey, will you supply your DNA because we think your nephew, Jim, did something. And if he supplied his DNA, it would still say I was a familiar match. In other words, there's a, let's say, 80% chance that Jim Chapman's DNA is on this scene because there's an 80% chance that whoever's. You know, the uncle of Jim Chapman, his DNA is 80% uh, of a match to the DNA on the scene. So I know you got to stay with me on that to really understand what I'm saying. But family members' DNA can be close and and is close to the person that actually did it. So they've caught people via familiar DNA many times in the past. Very interesting there. Now, it's also interesting that serial killers, um, in particular, will do a lot of things that only relate to them. It's, it's, we call them tells, they'll have little tells and they'll have little things that they do. And we've talked about trophies in the past that, uh, serial killers like to collect trophies. Okay. And they're different pretty much for every serial killer some will take the panties okay of their victims or they will that you know some of them will cut off a finger and keep a finger of the victims uh Jeffrey Dahmer we keep you know the actual heads inside jars of his victims um so in Derek Todd Lee's case it was keys uh, he would keep the car keys or the door keys. He would keep keys from every victim that he could. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the the ladies that was at the live was one of only two surviving victims of Derek Todd Lee at Unspeakable Live. And when he attempted to kill her and her boyfriend, when he happened upon them, they were yeah, they were 16 year old kids. They were parking and he came up on them, attacked them with a machete and did everything he could to get her keys out of the car before he ran. So that's a, that's a good example of how desperate they are to get these trophies. Derek Todd Lee was no different than that, but they all have the, those tells uh, with those trophies and, Usually, if you know you notice that panties are missing from every female that this serial killer has killed, and then you go to the suspect and you get a search warrant for his house, and he's got a bunch of panties there that don't belong to him, which or his wife or whoever, likely that's your guy, and that and those tells would would be how you'd figure that out. So they also tend to stick within a certain. Race, You don't see a whole lot of situation where a serial killer will deviate from a certain race. Um, It does happen, but it's it's uncommon, very uncommon. Uh, They also will stay within even hair color. Derek Todd Lee will use him as an example. All of the women in which he killed were either white or very, very light skinned. All of them had dark hair. There was no blondes. There was no redheads. Uh, of course, they were all female in his case. Uh, so that's three, three tells right there with Derek Todd Lee of who he would want to stalk and kill. Um, it was interesting. KJ in her live actually asked everybody to stand up at one point. And then she said, OK, if you're a guy, sit down. All the guys sat down. And she said, if you're a female with blonde hair, sit down. If you're a female with red hair, sit down. Uh, if you're a female with brown hair, sit down. And eventually, it was, you know, if you're if you're a dark-skinned black woman, sit down. You know, and, and then um, eventually all that remained were brunettes that were white or very light-skinned. And then she said, take a look around the room. Because every one of you would would be a what what is considered a victim of Derek Todd Lee, you are who he would stalk. And it was kind of a chilling moment, y'all. It uh, Really was, because there was a lot of people still standing up in that room. So that is absolutely accurate and true. They all, for the most part, there are exceptions, but most do not deviate from those tells those things that they like. Also in his case, they were all kind of women that let's just say he couldn't get any other way. You know, these are not, these were not women that would be interested in Derek Todd Lee in real life. So they were fantasy women. And here's another interesting thing uh, with all serial kill. Well, with the majority of serial killers there are exceptions to everything, but with the majority, they start off, Peeping. So they'll start off as a peeping Tom and looking in windows. And what's that doing, y'all? That's feeding a fantasy. They're just watching. They're not hurting nobody. Maybe nobody even knows. That's what they're thinking in their mind. And eventually that fantasy doesn't become enough for them. Now I want to touch them. You know, I've been watching them for so long and I've been fantasizing about, you know, sleeping with them or whatever. Now I want to touch them. I want to feel them. And that's kind of where that murder aspect comes into play. But it usually starts off with peeping and stalking. And it is a power play. Y'all they want to feel power over these victims. And even if that victim doesn't know they're watching, uh, they know it and they feel like they have some sort of power over these women and believe it or not there's some men that were victims of serial killers right now in Texas i mean this isn't confirmed and i haven't investigated i mean i'm only i'm only going off what i see on the news but a lot of men are coming up dead in a lake in Austin Texas and i mean a lot and uh You know, there's a lot of suspicion out there that it could possibly be a serial killer. And there's you're talking about 10 plus men. So it's not always women. You know, men got to keep their head on a swivel, too, as they say. So what happens to these serial killers after they get put into a prison like Angola? Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, Typically, when when a serial killer is caught, there's a lot of media attention behind that right especially if it's luck when Derek Todd Lee was doing his thing the media storm was unbelievable I mean uh, the police came out and said every gun in South Louisiana has been purchased people were going to handgun classes they were buying up bullets left and right couldn't find bullets I mean women were scared to death because he was targeting women this this serial killer And uh, so the media storm uh, made, when Derek Todd Lee eventually got caught, a very high-profile inmate. And they're not going to take a Derek Todd Lee and put him into a cell with another guy or put him in a pod where you have 100 guys around you. And I mean, he wouldn't last five minutes. Because guess what? In there, those inmates are wanting to make a name for themselves. Period, and Derek Todd Lee. They go kill Derek Todd Lee in prison, and they become, you know, pretty much the on the high, high arc of that prison, uh, pecking order. So he wasn't going to be put in into any sort of general population. They had him in what's known as CCR, which is like lockdown it's one cell and this is before his trial right then he goes to trial and he gets of course the you know the death penalty uh he actually had two death penalty cases he got death penalty in both cases uh even though he killed many more victims how many times can you be sentenced to death right and and so the state went to those families and they basically said if you don't want to be put through reliving this he's never getting out and he's he's going to be executed and that was okay for these people and they said that's fine you know justice has been served and they didn't they didn't try to get the death penalty for you know eight nine murders Um, but Derek Todd Lee then got put on death row which death row is uh, obviously similar to lockdown I mean you're pretty much locked down you get out one hour a day and it's basically like exercise so you pace back and forth uh in a pretty much a cage for an hour a day outside and that is all you get uh and that was what Derek Toddley dealt with after that um and that is true of pretty much all as a matter of fact i i'm comfortable in saying these days all serial killers that or high-profile, guaranteed, even if they don't get the death sentence, they're going to be in some sort of CCR environment for the rest of their life, which is uh, similar to a lockdown environment. They're not going to share share a cell with people and and things like that in most cases. So that's what's, what happens to them after they get in prison. Now, Derek Todd Lee, he, you know, sadly, since we've been kind of talking, he's been kind of the topic of this. Uh Sadly, Derek Todd Lee, you know, sadly for the families, never did get to face justice of the state and what the uh, what the jury convicted him to, which was the death sentence. But he did die in prison. It just wasn't via lethal injection. He actually ended up with some sort of liver issue. And um it was giving him problems, and he he eventually died in prison at a relatively young age. I don't, I think he was in his like mid fifties. So I just thought it'd be interesting today to jump on here and uh, and give you a little little bit of information on FBI profile and how they catch these guys. I know it's a little different than what you normally get uh, out of bloody Angola but I wanted to bring you something that was on my mind because of that live this weekend. And in Derek Todd Lee's case, they didn't have it right the first time. And that does happen. And, you know, it's, it's really nobody's fault. It, it, nobody more than the FBI and the police want to catch a serial killer. It's just sometimes how that stuff works. Unfortunately, we, we as human beings strive for per- perfection, but we don't always achieve it. Sadly, um, I want to thank all the patron members out there and you know, Woody as well. Uh, you're what makes this show run. I believe uh, wholeheartedly that this show would not be in existence right now were it not for the support of patrons. And hey, if you can't support, uh, via you know, a Patreon or anything like that. We get it. We get it. The best way you can support in that case is just share it um, with on your Facebook page or whatever. Tell your friends about it. Maybe text them a link to the podcast. That's that really helps more than, you know, if you haven't had a chance to rate the podcast and you're enjoying what you hear, please, please do so. Uh, That helps us uh, really move up the rankings on these podcast platforms which enable more people to be able to hear us and and uh we appreciate and and love each and every one of you for doing that i do want to say uh really just shout out again to all the people that were at unspeakable live this weekend i met a lot of you for the first time that were bloody angola listeners and it was so fun to meet you and talk to you and hey we we're all besties on Facebook and things like that. Uh, But when you see them and see someone in person and and you're used to seeing that profile picture and that name and here they are and in the flesh, it's, it's pretty awesome. And uh, we're so very fortunate to do this and have the support of so many people just love y'all to death for that. Thank you very much. And uh, one more thing I wanted to mention, I, I do have another podcast it's called Exposed The Scandalous Files of the Elite and what I do in that podcast that's uh unlike this podcast which is a co-host effort with Woody Everton that podcast is strictly a Jim Chapman podcast and what I do is I take higher profile people so P, you know society think about society people uh in some cases I'm doing one as a matter of fact on on uh P. Diddy. <laughs> it, look, y'all, there was just a court case that you wouldn't believe with P. Diddy, and I'm covering the P. Diddy um, upcoming, but uh, just did a Vince McMahon series. That was kind of like the lead-off series. It was unbelievable uh, that I think you'd really enjoy, and it's gotten so much fanfare. Y'all would not believe the downloads, or at least I don't believe the downloads that uh, that podcast is receiving already. Just total blessings for me. And uh, I cover actual cases where there are either court filings that are in process or they have just been adjudicated. So it's all going to be factual information where I am going off of those court records. Um, so it's not it's not an opinion show. It's not. Hey, this is my opinion, although I might offer it uh, somewhat in that show. It is going off the actual court documents, what's in the filings. So uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and there's everything. You know, it's just trusted members of society in some cases. I, I'm doing one right now on a, on the police officer. Uh, if, look, if you're in Tennessee, you've definitely heard of this case. But it was a female officer that she actually got fired along with I think it ended up being five other officers. She was actually sleeping with seven different officers, but five of the other officers, I think that's the exact count, got fired off the top of my head with her. Uh, They were having like orgies and all kinds of stuff. It's just crazy. And then this officer actually sues the police department in the city for humiliation for all of this getting out. But I mean, you know, you, y- y- y'all you are going to be like me. When you go listen to that series, you're going to be like, uh, I don't think you were forced into any of this. And so I'm really interested to get y'all's thought process on that case as well. So look for that. Scandalous Files of the Elite. It's called Exposed uh, on any audio platform. Whatever you're listening to this on, guaranteed you go type in Exposed and uh, and you'll find it. And I really appreciate y'all for Woody Everton. I'm Jim Chapman for Bloody Angola, a podcast, 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. I walk a straight line, shackle and chain. Old oh, Blues and Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the heel string Gang, Rango the Three.